Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Diane O'Carroll. Now, this week, scientists have discovered the mechanism that actually starts sperm swimming once they get out of a male and inside a female. Now, most people think of sperm as cells that are vigorously dashing around all the time in search of an egg to fertilise, but that isn't actually true. Sperm spend most of their time in a quiescent state, conserving their energy for when they do actually get inside the female of any species so that they can then start the great egg race, for want of a better phrase. How does that work, though? Big mystery. No one really ever understood it. But now a group of researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, and this is Polina Lishko and her colleagues, have published a paper in the journal Cell this week where they find out how it all works. What they did was a very elegant study called patch clamping. This is where you put a tiny pipette onto the side, the membrane of a single cell. In this case, they took human sperm cells, and this enabled them to measure the electrical currents which were going in and out of the cell at different voltages. And what they discovered is a specialised channel. It's called HV1, and this channel, which is also used on some immune cells, lets protons, in other words hydrogen ions, acid, out of sperms. And what happens is that this channel opens when the sperm go inside the female genital tract, the, a- alcohol- the acid, H+, floods out of the sperm, and this activates the sperm cells. And the channel itself opens in response to both an alkaline environment, also to low levels of zinc, and also in response to another chemical called anandamide. And anandamide is one of the body's natural cannabis-like chemicals. It's produced by egg cells. That's partly how sperm know to find eggs. And interestingly, people who use cannabis often have low levels or sub-fertility. And so it could be that what's happening is that they're fooling their sperm inside their own bodies into activating too soon. And so by the time the sperm actually come out, they're too tired to actually do the job. People often said that they're, they're too laid back to finish the job. It may actually be they're just a bit too tired. But this wonderful study, basically gives us an insight into how sperm get active and that also means that now we can begin to look at this as a prospective way to act as a contraceptive if we make small molecules that could block up these channels perhaps you could stop sperm getting active and therefore have a reversible form of contraception that maybe men or women could take and also some forms of infertility may be directly attributable to this channel not working properly so people's sperm don't become properly motile and so investigating it from that perspective could also be very helpful Diana. So wearing out your sperm uh, could be caused by smoking cannabis. That's a warning to all those people out there. Okay. well, also this week, uh, scientists have found that by comparing tiny pigment particles between modern-day birds and fossils, they've rediscovered the colours of a dinosaur that existed 150 million years ago. And they weren't just ginger. So reporting in the journal Science, the latest team, which was led by Yale University, their findings follow beautifully from last week's news of the flame-haired feathered Cynosauropteryx. Now, this study analysed colour-making structures called melanosomes from the whole fossil of a single dinosaur, and they managed to map out a great deal of the pattern of its markings. And the dinosaur in question was Anchionis huxleyi. That's a bit of a mouthful, which had wings, and it had a mohawk-like crest on its head. From their reconstruction, the paleontologists think it would have had a grey body, its crest would have been reddish-brown, and it had facial speckles, or freckles, like me, uh, <laughs> and white feathers on its wings and legs. With you can see now. Why we chose you to the, do the story? You saying I look like a dinosaur? <laughs> no, not at all. Dinosaur, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the way they did this was rather ingenious, actually.
actually, Jacob Vinther, who's also from Yale, was studying the ink sac of an ancient squid and realised that microscopic grainy features within the fossil were actually melanosomes, and these contain melanin, which provides pigment in animals. But previously, some scientists had thought these granules were just some really rather boring ancient bacteria, but not anymore. And the team looked at 29 feather samples from the fossil and they measured and mapped out these melanosomes. They then compared these with the types of melanosomes known to create particular colours in living birds. And that was using data compiled by a group at the University of Akron. And the analysis showed um, what the analysis allowed them to say with about 90% certainty, which is quite a lot, that these are in fact the colours of the individual feathers of a dinosaur. It's ingenious, isn't it? Because presumably because birds are the closest living relatives of dinosaurs today, they're they're the direct descendants. It's therefore reasonable to say, well, let's look at the structure of these melanosomes, see what colour they impart. And that's therefore going to give us a reasonable proxy of what these dinosaurs' colourations would have been. Well, yeah, what's really exciting about this is that they know that the feathers weren't really performing any uh, practical uh, purpose. They were actually more about attracting mates because they were so brightly coloured. I mean, that's, that's the theory that this has brought about. Because dinosaurs were pretty big. Uh, yes. So they didn't well, necessarily need feathers in order. But these, this particular species were quite small, weren't they? Yeah. But then ostriches are flightless, don't they? But they use them to keep them warm. That's the thing. But the, uh, if you remember the study from last week, it only had feathers on its head and back. And so it clearly wasn't performing any sort of uh, flight or And then they spread over the whole body. Yeah. Ingenious. We're talking of flying things, horrible flying things. The most dangerous animals in the world, in fact, are mosquitoes because they transmit malaria. This is Anopheles gambii, which are the mosquitoes that transmit the majority of malaria cases, 300 million cases of malaria per year. But how do they home in on people? That's the big question. They obviously use their antennae, and their antennae are decorated with smell receptors that can pick up tiny traces of the odorants that ooze out of people, and that's how the mosquitoes sniff us out to home in on basically their lunch. But... What particular jobs do each of those chemical receptors do? What do they track down? How do they work? Well, there's a very elegant paper in the journal Nature this week. It's by Alison Carey and her colleagues. She's based at Yale. And what she did was to take all 70 of the genes that make these particular smell receptors in mosquitoes and clone them, copy them, one by one, individually, into a species of fruit fly, which is a mutant which doesn't naturally have a sense of smell because it's got no genes that work in its antennae. So by putting each of these mosquito genes into the fruit fly antennae, what they're able to do is give a sense of smell to the fruit fly but only able to smell whatever that one gene would make a mosquito smell. That must have been so painstaking. I think it probably (laughs) was very painful to do. But it's an amazing study because what they then did was to present 110 different smell molecules, one after another, to each of these flies and record the electrical activity from the antennae to work out exactly what chemicals each of these genes make receptors respond to. So that's over 7,000 possible combinations. Thousands of them. But what they've therefore been able to do is to produce what we call the olfactory spectrum that the mosquito responds to. So we now know which of the genes respond to which particular smells in what particular way. They identified 27 of these genes which specifically help the mosquitoes to smell things like components in human sweat and also 
chemicals that bacteria that live on the skin produce, so volatiles that bacteria pump out, because the bacteria go with the people, the mosquitoes are smelling the bacteria, but therefore indirectly sniffing out the people. And what they're hoping is to use this as a way to build better repellents or even better mosquito traps in future, because they now know the structures and the genes for all these receptors. And as co-author John Carlson says, we're now screening for compounds that interact with these receptors. Compounds that jam the receptors could impair the ability of mosquitoes to find us, whilst compounds that excite the receptors could help to lure mosquitoes into traps or even to repel them. And the best lures or repellents will probably end up being multiple cocktails of these compounds. So a wonderful study which could help to tackle what it turns out is the most dangerous animal on Earth. Well, that's great news for people like me who end up looking like pincushions after coming back from holiday. Well, now also this week, researchers at the University of Cambridge have put together an artificial pancreas system which works overnight and considerably reduces the risk of low blood sugar occurring in diabetics during sleep. In people with type 1 diabetes, the pancreas doesn't produce any of the hormone insulin and it's this hormone which enables muscles and the liver to take up sugar from the blood. This can be a huge problem at night when these low sugar levels or hypoglycemic events can go unnoticed and can lead to seizures or even comas. Publishing this week in The Lancet, the Cambridge team put together some commercially available kits which can monitor and deliver insulin, but they added their own computer algorithm to work out how much insulin was necessary. They trialled this on 17 youthful people aged between 5 and 18 years who had type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetics can use an artificial pump during the night which feeds the body insulin. But the problem with that is that it makes no account for the sugar level at the time. It's just a steady stream of insulin. And with that method, the team found the blood sugar levels stayed in the correct range for about 40% of the time. But using their new setup where they adjusted the insulin to each blood sugar measurement, the resulting blood sugar level was right between 60% and 75% of the time. And Roman Havorka, who's from the Institute of Metabolic Science at the University of Cambridge, said these results suggest that closed-loop devices may be able to significantly lower the patient's risk of developing complications later in life by reducing or even overcoming the burden of hypoglycemia. Because obviously what people who have diabetes have to do is to guess basically how much insulin they think they're going to need and then they inject a sort of cocktail of different forms of insulin some of which works really quickly and some of which takes a longer time to filter out of the injection site and then into the bloodstream hoping that they get the level right for the overnight but it's not perfect so exactly. something like this can tailor it Exactly, because it can be different from day to day depending on how much exercise they've had or how much they've eaten just before they've gone to bed now, a story that hit the headlines earlier this week was news that scientists had managed, using a brain scanner, to communicate with a man who'd been considered clinically brain-dead for over five years. Adrian Owen is one of the researchers who's behind that discovery, and he's based at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge. We had a paper uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine when um, we investigated a group of 23 patients who uh, physically appeared to be vegetative and we used uh, a technique known as functional MRI to show that some of them actually weren't vegetative at all. What actually is the definition of, of a vegetative state? It's often referred to as a state of wakefulness without awareness and people often confuse it with, with coma but there are several really important differences. Coma patients will appear to you or I to be asleep whereas vegetative patients very often have sleep-wake cycles. They'll open their eyes, um, they'll appear to look around the room but crucially they won't show 
any responses to any form of external stimulation. So they won't actually you know, fixate on a relative and they won't actually respond if you walk into the room. But they are animate and that's what's so mysterious about them. What's going on neurologically to make them in that particular condition like that? Well, that's a very good question and it depends very much on the type of injury that they've had. And this is one of the, the really big difficulties with this, this patient population. I mean, you can end up in a vegetative state following uh, a car accident. That's, that's obviously quite common. Um, but you can also end up in a vegetative state due to a, a lack of oxygen uh, to your brain, for example, in a, a drowning incident, something like that. So um, they tend to have very different types of brain damage, and it's often very difficult to track down exactly what the problem is. So in order to make a diagnosis of this patient is in a vegetative state, what sorts of questions would a neurologist ask or what sorts of assessments would they make in order to reach that conclusion? Well, the, the central point is that there should be no evidence of any awareness. And that's, that's actually quite tricky if you think about it because it means that it's a diagnosis that's made largely on the lack of evidence um, that, the pers- that the patient is aware. So you know, the obvious things to try are to a- attract their attention, either visually or with auditory cues. Um, and essentially, if... If, if the patient shows no signs of awareness yet has, you know, wakes up, opens their eyes, um, has preserved sleep-wake cycles and preserved basic reflexes, then the assumption will be that they are vegetative and, and what usually follows from that is that they are assumed to be unaware. And the reason that they have those limited responses is presumably because they occur at a lower level of neurological processing their sort of automatic functions rather than the higher level conscious awareness that you and I have right now? Well, that's the assumption. And I think for the most part, it, it's probably true. I mean, it's probably a, a reasonable assumption to make. We're very interested in um, a group of patients that appear to slip through the net. So there's a dissociation between their, their physical um, appearance or their, their physical symptoms, if you like, and, and what might actually be going on in their head. And we've been trying to find those patients to detect that some of them are conscious uh, using functional MRI. Could you talk us through the, the set of experiments you actually did to, to reach this, really what we would describe as quite a dramatic finding? Yeah, well, the idea is that um, if, you, if you take on board that some of these patients have you know, no motor outputs at all, they can't speak, they can't move, but might actually be there, if you like, conscious inside their heads, then uh, the idea we had a few years ago is that they should be able to perform various imagery tasks, you know, mental imagery tasks that, that you know, we can all do um, very easily. So we had the patients imagine they were moving their arms around vigorously, and the way we encouraged them to do that was to ask them to imagine playing a game of tennis. And this produces very strong activation in everybody uh, in an area known as the supplementary motor area at the top and the middle of the brain. And because this is such a, a robust effect, because everybody who imagines playing tennis or imagines moving their arms around will activate the supplementary motor area, we can use it as a sort of a marker that the patient is responding, but not responding by moving their body, responding by activating their brain. So you could use that as the answer to part of a question. If they thought about that, then 
that would tell you they could comprehend what you told them and that perhaps they agreed if you say I want you to think about this when I ask you a question if you think the answer is yes or something. That's right I mean the, the first stage was to find those patients who appeared to be conscious and for those patients we would simply say well imagine playing a game of tennis now and if we saw activity in the supplementary motor area take off at that moment and we repeated it obviously a few times uh, and activity stopped when we said stop we would know that those patients were conscious what we were then able to do in one patient was to say, well, now imagine playing tennis when you want to say yes. And we had another task, which was to move from room to room in your house. So that's so-called spatial navigation. And if you imagine getting from A to B, this will activate an entirely different area of the brain known as the parahippocampal gyrus. And that was our no response. So the patient was instructed to imagine moving around the rooms of his house, visualising everything that he saw if he wanted to say no. And that way we could ask him simple yes or no questions, such as, have you got any brothers and sisters? Things that we wouldn't know, but we could nevertheless verify independently afterwards. Um, and it turns out he, he was able to do this. It's extraordinary to think this person is effectively locked into his body, has been written off, if you like, as a vegetative patient, but was presumably aware for five years in hospital, being able to understand, comprehend at least a, a proportion of the conversations being had around him, but had no means of getting that information out until you put him in a brain scanner. Yes, it is. Well, of course, this is early days, and it's not possible to know that he was aware for that whole period of time. I mean, it is all... It is also possible that, you know, he had recovered at around about the time of the scan. He'd recovered consciousness. That, that seems you know, unlikely. Um, it, it does seem very probable that he may well have been conscious for a, a good proportion of, of that time. And we'll only really know whether that's true when we start to scan more patients in this situation and we find more patients who can do it and we can start to ask them more probing questions like that one. You know, how long have you, have you been in this situation? And I guess also this gives neurologists another way to probe patients when trying to make a decision about, well, what's going to be the long-term outcome for someone like this? It is. I mean, it gives us another tool. Um, and I should say this is not going to apply to all or even the majority of vegetative patients. I mean, many of the patients in our sample didn't produce any responses at all. And, you know, I think... You know, we haven't changed the diagnosis of vegetative state. Those patients will remain. I think what we've done is we've come up with an additional tool that can be used to detect that subset of patients that slip through the net that physically appear to be entirely vegetative, yet if you can get inside their heads with fMRI, they can tell you that they're not, and in fact they're conscious. And so far in one case, and I hope in many more cases in future, we'll be able to allow them to actually tell us a little bit about their situation by answering yes and no questions in this way. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.